passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Those of you who are new, I'm Kurt. I'm one of the pastors. It is, it is great to have you. And I also want you to know that in upcoming weeks, we're going to have different elders. They're going to be coming up front and leading us in, in times of prayer for Ukraine. I think that's an, a really a appropriate way for you to get your, to know the elders better as they lead us in prayer. And also a chance for them to have some uh, opportunity to demonstrate or exercise their spiritual leadership publicly. And while we're talking about that, I just want to uh, tell you about how thankful I am for the elders. I've got a, a great group of elders that, that work with me. And wh what we do is elders work on the vision for the church and the implementation of that. And some of you are new around Crosswinds, so let me tell you a little bit about how Crosswinds works. We have a staff, obviously, that works with me. But then we have two boards. We have a, a group of elders and we have a group of deacons. The elders are, are men. They're godly men who are apt to teach. They have to know their Bibles well. And as I said, they're in charge of the vision for the church. They come from both campuses and we work together on reaching our region with Jesus Christ and taking care of the spiritual oversight of the church family. Uh, then we also have deacons. While the elders come from both campuses, the deacon teams are campus-specific. So we have a deacon team here on the Spirit Lake campus and a deacon team on the Spencer campus. And while the elders take care of spiritual leadership of the church, the deacons take care of per personal care in the church. They care for people and help people in needs, which is the biblical definition of that. And that's a little bit of how we work. Now, I'm going to come back to deacons and elders in particular a little bit later on in the message, but I felt it would be good to begin with that so you know a little bit about how we're structured here at Crosswinds. So let me dive into the main body of the message. I want to begin with this thought. In America, we love our freedom. You know, home, home of the free and the brave, right? We, we say we love our freedom. It's a good thing. But you need to realize that in many other parts of the world, people don't want freedom. Quite honestly, they want to be told what to do. People will tolerate, even welcome, a totalitarian government or a socialist government as long as it provides law and order in their community. Believe it or not, they don't want that freedom that we get to enjoy. Now, I'm not a great student of Russian history, so some of you may be able to correct me on this a little bit later, but I believe the whole rise of socialism and communism in Russia was the desire for people to have order in a chaotic society. So they centralized power in a certain party and in a certain person to have complete autonomy and authority. Well, I'm not a really good Russian history scholar. I'm a little better uh, at my German history. And I know a little bit what happened with Germany and World War I and, and World War II and a defeated and depressed Germany. They were willing to vote a, a Nazi, a fascist, into power. And once they voted him into power and he had complete control, they were willing to tolerate the fact that he was killing Jews, that he was enslaving people to the state. They really didn't want freedom. They wanted somebody to tell them what to do. Now, even in our own country today, you hear these similar cries, don't you? 
You know, we want socialism now. We want a socialist society. We want, we want big government, centralized power. Legislate everything from the top down, from your morality to your masks. That's what people are craving sometimes. We say we want freedom, but then you hear people who want autonomy and control, all centralized in a person. But why is it? We've seen where that can go. Just look at Hitler in World War II in Germany. We saw what happened there. Look at Vladimir Putin right now, who is the one who is large in charge in Russia, and how one person can be responsible for the death of literally, at this point, thousands upon thousands of people because he simply says so. Why is it that people crave to put all kinds of power and control and authority into one person? Why is it that they keep wanting and demanding a king? That is what we're going to look at this morning as we get into 1 Samuel chapter 8. Before we begin in that chapter, let's remember what we're coming out of in the 7th chapter. Last week in 1 Samuel 7, we saw that whole chapter was really about the incredible power of repentance. Remember, Samuel was a prophet of God who spoke the words of God to the people of God. And for the first like 20 years after the ark came back from the, the Philistines, people just ignored him. He preached repentance. No one listened to him. They kept following the, the Baals and the, and the Ashtoreths. They were following the Canaanite pagan deities around them. And as a result, God was actually fighting against his people, not fighting for his people. But after 20 years, we saw last week, of him preaching repentance, finally, finally, some people began to listen. Finally, their hearts were broken. They could see their sin. And that what began as a drip turned into a rushing river and there was national repentance in Israel as people confessed their sins, got rid of the Baals and the Ashtoreths in their life and they sought God. And the question we saw last week was this, does repentance make a difference? And the answer is it made all the difference because when the Philistines attacked them again, God went from fighting against his people to mightily fighting for his people. It says, and God thundered against the Philistines, threw them into confusion. They ran for their lives. And the way the chapter closed was great because it says that the Philistines and even the Amorites were thoroughly defeated and God had defeated them and there was peace finally in the land of Israel. And we saw that Samuel at that point, he continued to go on a little preaching tour every year, going to different towns, preaching repentance to his people, to stay in a right relationship with God, because repentance and being in a right relationship with God makes all the difference. Now, by the way, lest I oversimplify things, it'll say that Samuel was the judge of Israel. Yes. And he did he preach repentance? Yes. But as the judge of Israel, are there other things he had to decide and work on as really being the leader in the nation? Of course like a pastor like on the weekend my primary job is preaching but during the week we have counseling we have business meetings we have budget there's all that goes with the job so when we say that you know Samuel was busy preaching repentance as a judge of Israel yes he was doing that but of course there were other aspects to the job at that point but his chapter by the way the chapter 7 closes which sort of it 
like in a time of peace. But as chapter 8 opens, what we find is it's been many years. At this point, it's been a long time, and God has supernaturally protected his people, kept their, their enemies at bay. One commentator says that between the close of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, you probably have about 30 years difference. 30 years of peace and security that God has given for his people when they repented of their sin. But here at the end of 30 years, finally a crisis is beginning to come on the horizon. It's causing this God-given peace into question. What is that crisis? Let's find out. The crisis. Samuel was old. When Samuel became old... The guy who's been being the judge of Israel is now aging. How old is he? We don't know. But what we do know is old leaders are no, usually no longer the best leaders. They're getting a little tired. Incidentally, we've been in this book for a while. We've seen the problem of an old leader earlier in this book. Does anybody remember his name? What's that? Eli. That's right. Exactly. He was an old leader who also lost his effectiveness. He should have retired much earlier, but he didn't retire. In fact, every single time we saw him mention, it says, and Eli was old. And eventually says, and he was so old he couldn't see. And he was so old he couldn't hear. He should have retired, but he didn't. And then the last reference to him, I love that one. He was old and boy was he heavy. <laughs> sort of a little humor there. You know, being old can have some advantages. Obviously, you get to retire. You get to go out and play lots of golf when you're old. And I've been told that you no longer have to brush your teeth when you're old. You get to take out your teeth. But, you know, while being old has some advantages, it obviously has some disadvantages, such as decreased energy. You need lots of naps. Everything hurts. You have this problem of forgetfulness. You can remember what happened 30 years ago with crystal clarity, but you have no idea what you ate for breakfast. And when you remember what somebody what was going on 30 years ago, you tell the same person all about it 12 times. Because you're getting old. And this is Samuel. He's been leading the nation for 30 years. He's diminishing in effectiveness as all leaders do. So the sad truth is this, all leaders will grow old. They may gain wisdom, but they'll diminish in their capacity to lead. They'll diminish in their flexibility to handle change. Old leaders often want to go back in time rather than forward in time. And an old leader needs to pass the baton, as we often say here at Crosswinds. It's very important. But Samuel, thankfully, has a plan what to do now that he's old. And this is it. Samuel was sharing the work with his sons. And he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Well, this sounds like a good solution by Samuel's part. To get the difficulties of age, you just divide up the work. The sons can help me do the judging, make the decisions, and work with people. But wait a minute, an aging man 
who now using his two sons to help him in the work. I think we've seen that before, haven't we? Do you remember? Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. I think we're seeing an echo of the past. Now, we know that Eli, as he grew old, he was dividing the work with his sons, and there's some right justification to that because the priests, that was something that was passed from father to sons through the line of Aaron. But the judgeship ruling over Israel like this, is that something that was to be passed father to sons? Mm-mm. No, the judges were always raised up by God for a specific challenge and to rule for a specific time. In fact, there, if you go back into the book of Judges and some of the earlier judges, you find that Gideon, they tried to make him a king. They tried to make it a hereditary office and Gideon refused that. You can see that right here in Judges chapter 8. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my sons will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So the idea of passing this judgeship from father to son is not what is supposed to happen. Now, me speaking personally here, I do not think what is happening is that Samuel is trying to set up a dynasty where it's passing this from father to sons. I just, I just don't think that would be in Samuel's character. What I do think is happening is he's just old. He's just tired. He's trying to figure up a way to divide up the work and handle it. Notice it says that his sons were judges in Beersheba. You do your geography on this, you find that Ramah, where Samuel lives, is located more towards the north side of Israel. Beersheba is in the deep south of Israel. It's 50 miles away. It's a two-day journey. And Samuel's like, I just cannot ride that animal anymore. I am too old for this. I need my sons to help me with this. Which sounds like a good plan, until you realize the next verse. Samuel's sons were crooked. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. It turns out Samuel's sons were no better than Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were both perverting justice. Joel and Abijah, Hophni and Phinehas, They both were exploiting their positions of authority and using it to manipulate the people and to serve themselves. They're not serving people, they're using people. They're not giving themselves to the people, they're used to taking from people. Now, what it says here they're doing is they're turning aside to dishonest gain. In other words, they're taking bribes. They're bending the truth. Incidentally, anyone who was in leadership over the people was never to do this. This We find this in Exodus. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and who hate a bribe. Place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. I think we see here a clear parallel between Eli and his corrupt two sons and Samuel and his 
corrupt two sons. And I think there's a lesson we need to take from this. It's a real simple lesson. The best of leaders can have the worst of sons. That's it. Isn't it true? Even the best of leaders can have the worst of sons. There is no guarantee if you're a godly father or a godly mother that you will be able to successfully raise godly children. You may pray for your children. You may work for your children. You may teach the gospel and the good news to your children. But there is no guarantee that they will follow in that path. And I point this out simply to bring comfort to you. Because I know there's a number of us who have taught the gospel and have poured the good news of Jesus and read the Bible to our children. And yet some of our children have chosen not to walk after Jesus. It's a very painful position to be in. But we need to know we're not alone. This is the same position that Samuel was in. What an incredible man of God, a prophet of God, yet his children seemed like they didn't choose to faithfully follow God. Now, did Samuel continue to pray for them? Of course, just like we should. Did they repent later on in their life? I certainly hope they did, but we don't know that. Just that it's no guarantee that children will always turn out perfect for Jesus. Next point. The people wanted a king so they could be like the other nations. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us so we can be like the other nations. This is a reminder of something earlier in 1 Samuel. Remember when the elders were trying to make a key decision in an important crisis and they made a really bad decision? Like the Philistines were attacking. So they said, what we're going to do is go get the God box and we'll bring that down and use it as a military super weapon and how that was a really bad choice and it backfired. Here the elders of the people are making another bad choice. I know you've been a great judge over us, Samuel. I, I know that it's been a great period of peace for the last 30 years why God has protected us, but we want to get rid of you. We want a king so we could be just like the other nations around us. Samuel, you're old. But do we see that the elders prayed about this and sought the Lord on this? No evidence. Do we see that the elders came to Samuel and said, Samuel, you're the man of God who has been chosen by God to speak the words of God. Could you pray over this issue? We don't see that. Not at all. What they simply do is they demand a king. Now, is there a real crisis on the horizon? No. Remember, for the last 30 years, God has supernaturally protected the nation. There's no real crisis here other than the fact that Samuel is getting old. What would God normally do in this situation? God would raise up another judge because that's what he's done consistently for the last 250 years in the past. But they don't want another judge. They want to get rid of the judges. They want to change their whole form of government just so they could be like the people around them. And I put this in your outlines 
So you can see how this connects with chapter 7. In chapter 1 Samuel 7, the people were following the foreign gods around them. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, they wanted to follow the style of foreign governments around them. The people wanted a human leader they could see, not faith in a God they had to trust. That is what they were rejecting. A king that would be a big, strong, stable point of authority for them. And as I said, there was really no crisis at this point. They simply wanted to be just like their neighbors. And here brings another point of application I'd like to bring home to you. I have it in your outlines for you. Just as Israel was not to be led like the other nations, it was to be led as a nation under God, where God was the one protecting them, God was the one leading them. In a similar way, the church is not to be run like a business. And sometimes people try to think the church is a business and run it like a business, and it goes terribly. Now, are there many things the church can learn from the business world? Oh, of course, there's a ton of things we can learn about organization and how to do things well. But the church is not a business. We must not try to run it like a business. I know uh, back in the early days when I was a pastor, we were looking at this whole idea of KRAs. You business guys know that, key result areas. You have to get these things done. And one church that we looked at, they actually had key re result areas per ministry about how many people that ministry had to lead to Christ. And that leader of that ministry is responsible for making sure there are that many conversions. And I'm like, you can't do that. You can faithfully present the good news of Jesus, but it's up to God how people respond to the good news of Jesus. That's a bad KRA to put on like pastoral staff in any church. Give you some other ideas about how this kind of thing works. By the way, in the, in the church, Paul describes it as a body. It has hands and feet and presentable parts and unpresentable parts. In other words, God has wired all of us differently. In the church, you do not get to choose your employees. You don't get to choose your people. God gives you your people. That's why it's different than a business. In a church, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. They're not employees of Christ. We're brothers and sisters. We're a, a family, and we treat one another differently. Now, I began by telling you that we have elders and deacons here at Crosswinds. And just so you know, we didn't always have elders and deacons. What happened to us is we were actually consecutively teaching through the scriptures, which is what we do. We were in 1 Timothy, and we were looking through the passages that talk about elders and deacons. And we, I was preaching through it, and we got through it, and you'd be like, you know what? We don't even have deacons. Like, we miss that. In fact, our bylaws look a bit more like a business model instead of a biblical model. And so you know what we did as a church? We repented. And we redid our bylaws. And we came up with elders and deacons because those are the offices that are defined in the Scripture. And the definitions of who those people are and what they do are found in the Scripture. And we codified those right into our bylaws. And that's what we do to try and follow the Bible, not a business. 
because it's so easy as a church to try and act like a business and function like a business. And if you do that too much, you'll kill the church, not grow the church. There's a big difference. Next verse. And this thing displeased Samuel. And when they said, give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed to the Lord. In other words, Samuel does not like this request to get rid of him and, and you know, have a king in place of him. Now, to some degree, I, I think that maybe Samuel's hurt a little bit after 30 years of doing his job. Things are at peace. He's not going to like the fact that they want to fire him. I, I get that. That's pretty upsetting. Um, but what really upsets him is they're not really rejecting him. They're rejecting God as their king. They're rejecting God as their leader. But what I noticed as I was chewing on this in my personal study is I like what Samuel does when he's upset about this. It says he went to, the God, to God in prayer. Boy, is that a little practical application or what? What do we do when somebody makes us really angry? What do we do when somebody deeply upsets us? Usually the first thing we do is we vent, right? Probably the first thing we should do is follow Samuel's example. Like, go to God in prayer and say, God, I got to talk to you about this. How do I respond to this? What am I supposed to do with this? God, I need your wisdom, not just my response. That's what you see Samuel doing here. And I think there's just a little bit of practical wisdom in that. Now look what God says, and this is not the response that we would expect. The Lord says to, said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Well, this is a shocker. Samuel, I'm sure, was expecting God to say, don't listen to the people. They've wandered away. But instead, God says, actually, listen to the people. And by the way, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. Incidentally, God was specifically called king prior to this. Look at this in Numbers 23 21. The Lord God is with them. The shout of a king is among them. So they're rejecting God as their king. And here's the application. Because they've consistently and long-term rejected God as their king, and they want a man as their king, God will give them what they ask for. Folks, sometimes if we consistently reject God, we consistently pursue sin, we consistently pursue a foolish choice, in God's judgment or his discipline of us, he'll give us what we want even though it's not good for us. That's exactly what we have here. I have this as our application point. When we continually rebel against God, sometimes God will give us our misplaced desires as a form of discipline. We can see this also, by the way, in, in the book of Romans. This is talking about sexual desires and misplaced sexual desires and sexual sin. And what does it say? You'll see this constant phrase, God gave them up. 
In other words, God will protect us from our sinful ways for a period of time, but if people continue in it, eventually he's like, okay, you really want that? I'll let you have that. Because sin has suffering built into it, which should hopefully lead us to repentance. Look at this. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. The picture is, this is talking about heterosexual sin. You consistently pursue it. God will, he'll, for a while, he'll keep stopping you. He'll protect you. He'll protect you. But eventually you say, you really want it? Okay, I'll let you have it. And you can suffer along with it. You go two verses later, it says this. For this reason, God gave them up, once again, to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And it continues, and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Verse 24 is talking about heterosexual sin. If you continue to pursue that, then God will give you up to homosexual sin and receive in themselves the penalty of the perversion. Same thing in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Sometimes, if we continue to pursue sin, continue to pursue poor choices, continue to rebel against God, God will remove his restraining, protecting influence and let us have the sin or the poor choice that we desire as a way of disciplining us or correcting us. What does this look like in life? Let's talk about people who are in their 20s when it comes to the whole topic of marriage. You know how that goes. You start off in your 20s. I have these high standards. I'm going to wait for Mrs. Wright or Mr. Wright, and they're going to have all this long list of qualifications, and then 20 goes to 22, and then that turns to 25, and that turns to about 27, and the list is starting to get shorter and shorter, and eventually you're like, you know, okay, God, I will marry anybody as long as they have a heartbeat. And God's like, at that point, are you worshiping me? Am I first in your life, or is marriage the new God of your life? You're desperate for it. God will restrain us from the wrong people. He'll restrain us, but if we consistently pursue that, and God, I need marriage more than I need you, he said, okay, I'll give you not the person of your dreams, but the person of your nightmares. And I'll learn in a heartbeat, man, maybe that was the wrong thing after all. That's exactly what's going on with Israel. You consistently reject God as your king. You want a man as a king? Okay, I'll give it to you. And here's another application I thought would be sort of fun. We have to realize sometimes God's greatest mercies to us come in the form of unanswered prayers. Isn't that true? God, why don't you give me what I'm asking for? I've been praying about this for a long time. And we think he doesn't love us but he's not answering our prayers because he does love us. Is that our foolishness? We cannot see the foolishness and the unwisdom of what we're asking for. It's a whole way to think about unanswered prayers differently. Cindy and I recently had a chance to watch that new Kurt Warner movie, uh, American Underdog. Any of you guys had a chance to see that one yet? Okay, well, it's, if you're looking for a movie, I can say it's actually a good movie, and it's worth watching. I won't give away too much of the movie, but I'll say this much. Uh, Kurt Warner, it sort of describes that growing up, it was his dream to play in the NFL. 
And when he was younger, he had a chance to play for the Green Bay Packers. He gets, goes into um, to the camp, and he's really cut. I think it's like almost two days, and he's just axed, and he is heartbroken. Why does he get axed as soon as he gets the chance to go to the Green Bay Packers camp? Like, God, what are you doing here? That ends up leading to some hard times in his life. That ends up eventually leading to arena football. And then, eventually, later on, he gets a chance to go to the Rams because, uh, as a backup on the Rams because the key quarterback gets injured in a preseason game. He gets the substitute in, and he takes the team all the way to the Super Bowl. And you guys know the rest of the story. But in the interview I was looking at with him and his wife on YouTube, he says, essentially, boy, am I so thankful God didn't answer my prayers when I was younger. I wasn't ready. I was so upset with God as to why he didn't answer my prayers the way I wanted. Now I know. Thank God for unanswered prayers. Because sometimes giving you what you want like a king is absolutely the wrong thing. Now, Samuel was to warn the people about what would happen to them if they did get a king, one person in sole authority over them. And that's what he does at this point. God warned the people about the sinful heart of a king. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants, the best of your young men and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flock, and you shall be his slaves. In that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. What God says, you really want a king? Let me tell you what it's going to be like. There is one key word you need to know. He says it again and again. This ting will consistently take from you. It'll be take, take, take. So you can serve him, him, him. Vladimir Putin is in sole authority over Russia. He's busy taking what he wants, making people serve him. He doesn't need the Ukraine. He's decided, I'm going to use my people to take the Ukraine. And all he's really billing is his own ego. He's not saving anybody. He's just building up his own ego and his own greatness. Which, by the way, the scripture says here, that is the ordinary path of a king. This is not the way a particularly wicked king works. It's the way every king works. Anytime we reject God as the king of our life, 
and replace him with an earthly human being, that person will not save us. That person will be a tyrant over us every single time. Look at the details. He will take your sons and his sons will serve him. His, your sons will die in his battles. Isn't that exactly what Vladimir Putin is doing with the sons of the Russians? They are dying in his battles. Did you guys see that text message that the Ukrainians found between a Russian soldier and his mother? Anybody see that? Okay, well, hopefully I summarize this right. Mom's texting the son. So how are the training exercises going in Crimea? (laughs) Text back. We're no longer in Crimea. We're in Ukraine. We're shooting at civilians. Then he goes on to describe the Ukrainians are literally putting themselves in front of our vehicles and we are running over them. He says that they are literally, we're driving over them with our wheels, mother. And he's heartbroken. He's like, I don't want to do this. And then the text messages stop because he's been killed. This is exactly what God warned the people of Israel against. Whenever you take an earthly person and put them in sole power and authority over a group of people, they will spend their energy and time taking from people, making them serve in their armies to fight their wars to build them up. That's exactly what happens here. Not only that, but he says, your daughters will get hit too. They won't be staying home, having children, being wives. They'll be working for the king, being his perfumers, his bakers, his cooks, giving the best food for his family, the best food for his friends, not for your family. And then he's going to take your fields. He's going to take your vineyards. He's going to take the best of your olive orchards. To do what? To give that to his buddies. To give that to his cronies. Oh, you like taxes? We've got extra tithes coming. Taxes are going to up, go up dramatically. Why? So he can live in the lap of luxury. Not necessity. And your servants, your best servants that work for you, he'll take them and he'll make them work for him. He says, God says, I freed you from being slaves in the land of Egypt. You want an earthly king? You will end up being slaves in your own land. Servants and slaves to him. Here is the takeaway, folks. Kings, monarchs, and big governments will always take more than they give. Always. Kings and big governments. You want big government and kings to provide for all your needs? Be ready to give away your freedom. Be ready to give away all of your resources. If you want the government to solve all your problems, give them everything. And by the way, when you think the government's going to solve all your problems, they will not. It'll be mismanagement and poor leadership. That's what happens. Now, whatever good a king does for a nation like this, the point is this, they will always end up taking more from the nation than they give to the nation, and they'll make the people of the nation their servants. We see that later in biblical history. We see that with Hitler. We see that with Vladimir Putin. By the way, you want to see how well this plays out? Just go a few kings into the future. 
Well, we know Saul. We're going to study him in a few short weeks. After Saul comes David. After David comes his son Solomon. And we're like, oh, Solomon, he's a great guy. Didn't he build all these great things and have peace in the land? Yes, he, he did. But you got to look at how that was accomplished. He took seven years to build the temple, right? Great, huge things. Then he took another 13 years to build his house. Twice as long, twice as big. And where did all that labor and all that money come from? The people, all serving him to make his house twice as big as the temple for the entire nation. The scripture says this to describe the kind of servants that Solomon had. King Solomon drafted Notice the word forced labor out of all Israel, the draft. The draft numbered 30,000 men serving him. Later it continues, Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers, human dump trucks to carry things, 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country. A king will take and you will serve. That is exactly what will happen. Now, you get to the end of Solomon's reign. His son Rehoboam takes over. What's the people, the first thing they do, if you know the scripture, they come to Rehoboam and says, please lighten the burden. It is too heavy for us to bear. Rehoboam is a young guy, thinks he's going to be really tough. He says, my little finger, my little finger is thicker than my father's thigh. You think my father was tough on you? Just wait till I get in charge here and start to lead you. I'm going to make you really serve me. What responds, the people respond by essentially civil war. The nation of Israel divides in half. The ten northern tribes end up under someone called Jeroboam. The two southern tribes end up under Rehoboam. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. It splits. Why? Because the king was so oppressive of the people, constantly taking from them. And that's not just true at this time. That's true at all times. When you take one person and put them in sole authority over the people, they will be takers trying to build things up. Now, God's warning fell on deaf ears. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we can be just like all the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, in spite of this warning and this request, the people demand that Samuel make them a king. And I think there's an interesting observation here. Beginning of this chapter, this request for a king came from the elders. But at this point, and actually also we see this a little earlier, we find out that the request for the king doesn't really come from the elders. It came from the popular opinion of the people. Here's the application point. Very important. The elders are supposed to lead the people not to follow the people. These elders are playing politics. 
They're just following popular opinion of the people, not what is, they know is biblically right. By the way, this same is true today. Church elders, their job is to lead the church, not to pacify people in the church. Church eldership takes courage. It means standing for truth. It means standing for what the Bible says. Folks, this may come as news to some of you. The church is not a democracy. The church is led by elders who are the spiritually mature men in the church who know God's word well enough that they are apt to teach it. And God places the leadership of the church in the plurality of the elders. He never places it in one man in the church. He also doesn't place it in the loudest voices in the church. Because oftentimes the loudest voices in the church are not biblically right in the church. If the church is democracy, then the most spiritually mature person and the most spiritually immature person have the same vote, the same authority. And that is not the way God sets it up. Just as the majority opinion for Israel was dead wrong at this point, and the elders should have stood up to them and stopped it. Many times in the modern church today, the majority opinion in the church is dead wrong. And the elders' job is to stand up and stop it. To have courage and not to be timid men. They are to follow the Bible and not the culture. Let me give you an example of this. Sometimes, if you take the majority opinion in churches, they'll say, well, women, they should be pastors too. Women, shouldn't they be elders too? Well, isn't that what we do in our society? Well, let's do what we do in our society. Put your finger in the text. Look at the descriptions of what elders and pastors are in the Bible. That is a male-only role. Now, we've taught about this a number of times here at Crosswinds. You want to know those teachings? They're all online. We have a 13-year archive of video, audio, notes, everything for you. I can show it all to you. That is what the Bible teaches. And so we follow what the Scripture teaches, not what culture teaches. That's very important. And these elders have missed it. They're just following popular opinion. Well, it continues. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice, make them a king. And Samuel then said to the men of Israel, All right, go every man to his city. Now there's some points of application I want to give to you here. Some things that have stuck out to me. Some come out of this text and some I just have been in my mind. It's this. Number one, Israel tried to find security for a future, find security for the future in a king instead of God. Today, in a similar way, people like to look to politicians to save them and give them hope for their future instead of God. Isn't that true? People looking to politicians to save them. Politicians running on the platform of being a savior. If you just elect me, I'll do everything you want to make your life great. 
when they get in office, do they do any of those things? Absolutely not. Nope. Politicians and people will never be your savior, folks. Only God. Next, whenever a church or denomination strays from a plurality of qualified elders governing the body and concentrates power on one man, like we see in Russia, it will lead to disaster every single time. God wants distributed leadership amongst the elders, not concentrated leadership in a man. Very important. Um, some of you guys maybe have heard of this podcast. If you hadn't, haven't uh, heard of it, I'd encourage you to look it up on your Apple podcast, listen to it. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's an in-depth interview on what happened with Mars Hill Church in Seattle. And one of the big key factors is when Mark Driscoll, who was the pastor there, eliminated his elders and made himself the sole authority in the church. That is what spelled the end. That is not God's model, folks. It's completely biblically wrong. Number three, the majority rule does not always produce the right results. Elders are to lead people, not follow people. And lastly, this, folks, Jesus is the only king who won't fail us. He is the only king that we can trust. You know, we're all looking to follow a king. We're all looking to follow somebody. Every human being you follow will fail you. I guarantee you. But Jesus won't. Rather than taking from people, Jesus gave his life for his people. Rather than putting people in debt for projects for self, he paid our debt on the cross. Instead of enslaving us, Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Friends, today I say choose your king. The only one who's worthy of following is Jesus. Heavenly Father, Thank you for what your word tells us about the danger of concentrating authority in one person. The danger of a king, of a monarch and a ruler. We see that ever so clearly uh, right now in, in Russia and Vladimir Putin and the invasion of the Ukraine where he's making people serve him to fight his wars and his battles. Thank you for some of the wisdom you gave our forefathers to distribute leadership, not in one person, but through different branches of government with checks and balances. To distribute leadership, not just as one national government, but also with state governments. Lord, we thank you for also how you've seen that wisdom to see fit in churches. That the churches are led by a plurality of elders and not by a single man. And thank you especially for giving us the one man we can always follow, which is Jesus, your son. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.